0: Welcome to Greenlight Pod is your host Chris Long. Um, Got a lot going on today. Going to talk about the NFL for the first time in a little while. Uh, I have been laying off the NFL stuff and I'm not even going to pretend like I'm keeping up with what's going on. I know that's my primary lane that I'm an NFL guy, but uh, shit, I mean there's a lot more important things going on than the NFL, but we will spend a second or two on that and uh, I'm going to get Myron Roll on the phone. He is in year three of his residency, I believe, to become a neurosurgeon. Uh, I can't say enough about this guy. He was a standout at Florida State and an NFL player for three years and uh, basically gave it up to be a doctor. And uh, 10 years later, almost 10 years later, he is um, on the front lines fighting uh, for us um, when it comes to COVID-19. He's at Mass General um, and I'll ask him all about that virus, uh, how he's coping with being on the front lines and how you know his fellow uh, medical professionals are coping as well. Also, I have a mailbag on the tail end we'll do. So yeah, let's get right down to it. Mm-hmm. news. Okay. Alden Smith to the Cowboys. I'm really excited. This guy got a job. He's obviously fucked up in the past. He's done things. He wants back over five years. People can change. Okay. Um, and although it's absolutely mind boggling to think that somebody can stop playing such a violent sport that you really need to maintain a mindset and a grind I believe to be successful um, year after year. Just being out of the league for a year and a half, I realize how hard it is or would be to get back into it. Um, You know, Alden's been out since two thousand fifteen, and if anybody can come back and be successful as a rusher, I think it's him. He had one of the best feels as a rusher I've I've ever seen. He's one of my favorite rushers that played in the league uh, during my tenure. Um, his first three years he had 42 sacks the The company there is Derek Thomas and Reggie White Okay, that's how special he was and I know I know he had Justin Smith and a lot of people, you know with the whole Smith brothers thing in San Francisco would You know attribute a lot of his success to rushing with Justin I would attribute some of Justin's success those years rushing next to Alden Um they were a dominant force that could have existed without one another, uh, but they amplified their effect next to each other. And, you know, the styles of, of, of rushers that they were. Obviously, Justin was more of an interior rusher, uh, unlike earlier in his career in uh, Cincy, where he was more of a base DN. Uh, they played off each other well. They got busted on some grab games, but they're still running grab games in the NFL. Uh, that wasn't where all the production came from. Alden had such a great bull jerk complex, which is basically when you get into a guy's chest, you use your length to create separation. Separation makes offensive linemen feel uncomfortable. Alden had length. He had timing. Um, he wasn't, um, you know, the, the quickest or the fastest or the strongest, but he had explosiveness and he had length. And like I said, when you create that you know, with good timing, you time the bull up well. You time the long arm up well. Uh, you turn your body at the right angle. It makes offensive linemen uncomfortable. And a lot of the mileage he got out of that complex was getting guys to feel that discomfort uh, in the distance that he created and getting them to duck their head, stop their feet, and he'd pull them by. I mean, he was terrific with his hands. A lot of rushers, uh, they could bull you, they could grab you, but they don't. They're not. they're not holding on. And uh, Alden always had a solid grip and, and an accurate punch when he went to bull rush and he had technique to go with it and a great field and uh, obviously great talent. When he played, he was probably 260 soaking wet. You know, I, I played in that division. I knew Alden a little bit. I had great respect for his game. And we talk after some games. I, I don't think he could have been more than 260. I think he carries weight well. They say he's up to 285 pounds. Um I'm not sure how that works out. I'm not sure how it works out being five years out of football. I'm not sure how it works out with him in a three-point stance, presumably um, opposite uh, DeMarcus Lawrence in, in, in Dallas. But the upside is huge. I mean, even with five years off, from what I understand uh, from Jay Glazer, he has put in the work and then some. I think he's uh, been sober for a very long time. He's attended all the meetings. He's worked his ass off at Jay's gym uh, with a lot of the veterans that work out there, uh, with MVP in Los Angeles. And, uh, he's ready for a comeback, um, whatever that means. And I hear he's 285 pounds. So I don't know how he carries that, but I believe that, you know, if Jay says he's carrying that if, if the frame looks good, uh, which he says it does, I'm pretty sure he's in good shape. Now the, the football feel thing, it's anybody's guess. Um, but again, one of the best rushers I ever saw in person in that three-year span. Um, and I remember that primetime game against Gabe Karimi. It felt like he had seven sacks uh, in you know in San Francisco against the Chicago Bears. That's one of those games that I remember rush-wise as much as any rusher's uh, best game OCU Menorah's game against Philly sorry Birds fans that was incredibly memorable to me as a young rusher watching that my senior year in my apartment uh, it was a prime time game I, I remember where I was when I saw that game I also remember where I was when I saw um, when I saw Alden abusing Gabe Karimi now the thing about Gabe Karimi was Gabe Karimi was, was getting beat a good bit um, and you know it's a boomer bust move. I'm excited to see it. And these are the, the the kinds of deals that Dallas is going to have to make some risk reward deals um, where the, the reward is big uh, the risk, not so much uh, because you're going to have to pay a quarterback an exor- exorbitant amount of money. And um, to build around a quarterback, sometimes you have to take these, uh, these boomer bust deals. Um, but it's not like they're paying a, a ton of money. Um, they're, they're going to be able to get out of it with relative ease if it's not going well. Uh, I think, you know, first and foremost, good for Alden. Uh, and I look forward to watching him, him play. However, that turns out other NFL news, uh, no, one big, uh, uniform guy, Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Okay. Uh, they finally changed their uniforms today. Um, today is Tuesday and they kind of, Okay, this is the equivalent, and I tweeted this. It's an improvement, no doubt about it. Uh, But the bar was pretty low. They have solid uniforms now, okay? Uh, This is essentially like fucking up and acting like you did something new when you just admitted your mistake. They just went back to the old ones with some slight alterations. Um, But it's an improvement. They're kind of giving a nod to 1997 to 2003, those glory years where they won that Super Bowl uh, with less of that gold color I hate that they had on their pants. It's, it's more true, I guess, pewter, if that's what you're calling it. And uh, I've been known to be critical of pewter, but I think they did a pretty good job using it. Uh, I was one of the many people who hoped that they'd go back to the creamsicles that they wore from 76 to 96 with Bucko Bruce, who my friend Dave Damashek, friend of the program, um, aptly... Describes as a mascot that looks like he's related to, you know, Paxton Lynch, if you know what Paxton Lynch looks like Uh, And one of the most disappointing things about this new uniform, other than just not going for it all and going creamsicle Is that the big pirate ship and the big flag, the oversized helmet decal stays I don't think that's great, I think that's a mistake They've added a black face mask Um, I think the pant stripe is good um, you know this is better. They kept the orange. There is some orange in there. That's pretty good. Big movers in the uniform sweepstakes, but I think they left some uh, something on the table here. They they could have gone creamsicle, uh, whatever it is. Thank goodness that Tom Brady, the goat, is not trotting out um, in front of a, you know a plastic pirate ship wearing shot clock looking um, numbers on his chest. Uh, that would have been terrible. It uh, it would have been nearly unwatchable, and they are prime whenever they get back to uh, play in a lot of uh, primetime games. So, good thing we're not going to be looking at that, you know, awful, awful uni that they've been fielding the last five years. Um, back to the old days a little bit. Now the Falcons. It looks like, and this is kind of real time. As I sat down to record this pod, I saw that uh, my co-host Making Gunner sent me, uh, who's a uniform connoisseur, sent me the Falcons uniforms, which got leaked. And we know what happened the last time something got leaked with an NFL uniform or logo. It didn't go so well with the Rams, you know, although, you know, the, the logo looks better than it did at first on the hat in L.A., it looks like a fucking Chargers logo, Um and there's no going back. We could have a similar situation with the Falcons uniforms where they really are gonna get their reviews um, on this thing before they make it public. And uh, I think it could get ugly because these uniforms that I saw look awful. Please tell me there's no gradient. Uh, In the picture I saw, it looks like they actually took a step back and I saw there was a gradient on one of the uniforms that was just awful looking, who would have thought we would have seen the Bucks leapfrog the Falcons in uniforms. All the Falcons had to do was throw on those throwbacks that they wear from time to time, and they would have looked terrific. You could go Jeff George era, you could go early, early Michael Vick era, um, and you would have been just fine. But yet you tried to get fancy and you tricked it off. And if those are the uniforms that you're fielding, uh, I've lost my faith in people making decisions for professional sports teams. An awful, awful miscalculation and a missed opportunity by the Falcons. If those are truly uh, the uniforms uh, that they'll be unveiling soon that got leaked. I mean, bad stuff. Uh, You probably have seen them online by now. Um, The draft thing. Okay. The draft is still going on as scheduled. Obviously, they're talking about doing it on Zoom. You might want to be careful with Zoom. There's been a lot of hacking going on with the Zoom system. And um, that's like classes at universities and high schools. I mean, imagine what's going to happen to Roger Goodell if they run this thing on Zoom. That's how I'm running like power hours with my buddies. Um, I, I don't know. Risky, but could it be good TV? Yeah. Um, and by the way, I'm, I said this on the pod the other day with uh, Jason Hartilius um, and we talked about COVID-19 the entire time. If you didn't get a chance to check that out, check that out. Uh, Jason is recovering from COVID. He was in the hospital. He's a producer at NFL Network. He uh, worked with me this fall on NFL Next with Kay Adams and uh, James Coe. Happy belated birthday to K Adams. Um, this is me checking to see if you still listen to the pod because you used to be like, yeah, I heard, you, I heard the pod this week, blah, blah, blah. Um, We'll see if you're listening to it uh, as you're socially distancing. So happy birthday, Kay. But Jason battled COVID, um, and he is on the up and up. We talked about the draft uh, with him being in the business. And, you know, we kind of had the same mindset on that, which is that if you can do it safely, I think you do it. I think, you know, the draft has always been, you know, or football has always been, at least from fans that have communicated this to me during uh, tough times or uh, during – divisive times that football is is a break from all the bullshit. And uh, a pandemic definitely falls on under the the category of bullshit. So if you can get a draft to happen, to be a distraction for folks, and if you do it safely, I'm all for it. Um, I know that it can seem tone deaf to see people making a bunch of money um, in the midst of, you know, economic uncertainty, but uh, I don't know why we always take it out on athletes and not CEOs. Uh, that's just me. Now, the draft happening on Zoom um, reminded me of uh, of the fact that we've been doing a power hour every weekend, me and some buddies. Uh, the background thing is tremendous. Uh, I love putting, well, I'll just say I, I've put some pretty vulgar backgrounds as my zoom background, just for the fuck of it to mess with my buddies to act like a middle schooler. But the problem then is that I've done a couple of uh, interviews with media outlets um, via zoom. And uh, as soon as I log in to uh, engage in that conversation with a reporter on the other end or, and hopefully they're not recording my background from power hour, which could be almost anything uh, pops up and uh, I have a little mini heart attack. And I just exit the video as quick as I can. Uh, Zoom can be treacherous and it could be hacked into. Could that make for, for good TV? Uh, is, is Roger going to take that risk? We'll see how they do it. One positive thing about sliding in the draft this year is that, I mean, I just think this is the year to do it. If you're going to slide, this is the year. Uh, you're essentially missing out on the hardship of you know, that all dressed up with nowhere to go look you know, in front of millions and millions of people sitting in Radio City Music Hall when I played, or now whatever city the draft's in, it would have been Vegas this year. But you don't have to go through that if you slide late, late into the first round, surrounded by your your friends, your family, your girlfriend who might not be around in a couple of years. Um, that's always an interesting one. I, I I wonder as I watch the draft, some of these significant others. You know, I, I wonder if how you could predict whether or not. It's going to last. Uh, it's, it's not a fun game to play, but sometimes I play it in my head. Uh, you don't have to slide in the draft in front of your friends, family, significant other coaches. You also don't have to slide in the draft uh, sitting in your parents' living room with 50 people who are there to party and wondering um, why you didn't get picked where your draft grade was. Anxious eyes. You don't have to deal with that. You can just sit alone in your room. Uh, like you're waiting for an Xbox update that's never going to come and uh, and just go it alone. I mean, this is a good year to slide. So um, another thing I wanted to mention was I wanted to shout out my buddy Tom, um, who is coordinating in the group text. This is uh, kind of the, the power hour thing reminded me of the fact that, you know, uh, with the pandemic, there's obviously no gambling, uh, but there is an opportunity to get creative Uh, in our group text. We've got Matchbox cars in the driveway, uh, taking bets, bunch of us getting action. um, And, you know, it's filmed every time, slow motion. You can see who the winners are. Tom's a terrific cinematographer. Uh, He is raising the morale in the group text uh, by running these races and it's kind of fun. So if you haven't tried it, uh, you know, in, in the wake of pretty much anything you could bet on being shut down, uh, I think there's something here for you to fill the void with, and that's Matchbox cars. Get your buddies together, throw in a group text, the buy-in is the buy-in, it's whatever, uh, and 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 put a yardstick down, line the cars up, pull that yardstick out from uh, from under the cars and, 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 and let those babies run and see where they go. Um, it will have the group text popping. Also, NASA tweeted at me this week. Big deal, I've been admiring the moon. Uh, I guess it's like a super-duper moon tonight. There was a super moon the night before, um, and the moon has been lit. The moon has been thirst-trapping. And me, like everybody else, tries to take a picture of it every time. It's, It's absolutely gorgeous. Uh, with my iPhone, and uh, I've realized I probably have about 200 pictures of a yellowish, white, um, grainy light, uh, circle of light in my phone. And that would be the moon. Um, I don't know why it's taken me 200 pictures to realize I'm never going to get that fucking picture I wanted, uh, where you can see the craters. I think part of me thinks that by 215, the craters will come out. Maybe the iPhone 12 will be able to get it. Uh, but it's not doing it. I'm gonna try to do something tonight, revolutionary. When I call my wife outside and I tell her to look at the moon, we're not gonna, we're not gonna tilt our heads back and uh, stare at the moon through our phones for five minutes and walk back inside. We're gonna look at the fucking moon for a little bit. Um, no pictures. iPhone not getting it done. Uh, but NASA tweeted at me. Pretty cool. They tweeted a link, uh, from some NASA people. Um, In response to my tweet So anyways, uh, without further ado Let's get Myron Roll on the line Again, he is training Studying to be a neurologist He's in like year three of his uh, Residency And um, he has Volunteered to help out In the fight against coronavirus He's at Mass General He's going to tell us all about that Really, really great having Myron Roll On the line, somebody I have immense respect for welcoming now to the green light podcast uh, somebody i legitimately look up to you know we throw the word hero around a lot and uh used to be a peer of mine now he is uh, far superior he is a neurosurgery um well you're gonna be a neurosurgeon when myron roll when are you gonna when are you gonna make the transition to have the actual title
1: yeah, so I'm a resident right now, my third year. It takes seven years to uh, become a full fledged attending neurosurgeon. So I uh, got a couple more years ago. If you remember Myron
0: Roll, Myron Roll is, was one of the biggest studs in the country when it came to football. Went to Florida State, inexplicably. You should have been a Virginia Cavalier. I don't know what happened there. Uh, we would have loved to have you up north, but it all worked out. Oxford for a year, the Titans for three years, drafted, uh, and decided he wanted to walk away and become a doctor. And I'm glad that, uh, you know, if you're going to be cutting into my brain, that you're going to be having to study for seven years. That seems long enough to me.
1: Yeah, for sure. For sure. Absolutely.
0: Um, So right now, uh, before we get into the obvious stuff, you're on the front line battling um, COVID. Your your floor at Mass General has uh, turned into a surge clinic uh, and you volunteered to work it. Um, and you guys have 1,200 cases as of yesterday of COVID, which is wild. Um, I do want to plug your your foundation uh, because I think it's great work you're doing. Uh, reading right off the site because I don't want to butcher anything. It's dedicated to supporting wellness, educational, and other charitable initiatives throughout the world that benefit children and families in need. And you started this thing in 2009. What are you guys doing uh, as we speak? I know things are probably on hold with, uh, with COVID a little bit.
1: Yeah, no, thanks for for talking, but yeah, absolutely, man. Our foundation—it means a lot to me. Uh, the Myron Elroy Foundation, um, you know, we help children, especially disenfranchised and marginalized kids uh, in America and even back home in the Bahamas too, where I'm originally from. Uh, I've always had a heart for service. Uh, my favorite Bible verse comes from Matthew 25:40. Jesus talking to his disciples, "Inasmuch as ye have done for the least of these, my brethren, ye have done unto me." So the least of these is the type of people that I, we try to affect change in. So. We run this academy. This one is a leadership academy for foster kids in Florida and in the Bahamas. Uh, we do something called uh, Roads to Success, a playoff of the road scholarship, sort of an academic workshop for these kids and get them thinking better as, as sort of students and how to figure out this game of academia and, and work through that, that, that road. So it's something that we've, uh, we've, we've, we've loved uh, every year. It, it, we work at it and um, it's been consistent since 2009. Uh, still doing it now we're looking to expand here in boston because i'm here for seven years so uh, it's been great and it's one of my highlights of my year whenever we get to see these kids come out of the situation where they thought they didn't have a chance they didn't have any future and now they at least see an opportunity for them uh, and if we can provide that for them it's amazing
0: i think that's wonderful man and i know it's got to be tough right now i mean i run a foundation of my own and and uh you know People are that that sort of thing might take a backseat for a little while, but I think uh, I think it's all hands on deck here domestically to support our communities and the things that people are going through. So you're really fighting battles on on multiple fronts now, and I applaud you for that. So I appreciate you. And uh, obviously, as I mentioned earlier, you are uh, on the front line. You're about to do a 24 hour shift right now. Is that your first?
1: Yeah. So uh, I've done 24 hour shifts on Friday and Sunday. I have another one tomorrow. So. This, um, you know, our hospital has been transformed, Chris. I mean, we, when you walk in now, it doesn't look like Mass General anymore. It's a Harvard hospital, very big, a thousand beds in our hospital. We're a major transfer center for New England, Vermont, Maine, uh, across the country, even internationally, we get patients from Bahrain or the UAE. And so um, to see our hospital now where everyone has to wear a face mask, everyone gets hand sanitizer as soon as you walk in the hospital. Um, The clinics aren't, Open anymore. Everything is done virtually now to keep people away from the hospital because it is sort of a nidus of infection right now. The emergency department is overflowing with people who are coming in off the street with symptoms analogous to COVID 19 or positive tests. Um, our neurosurgical floor, as you mentioned, has been transformed. Our operating rooms are slowing down. I did an operation today, but I think by next week, you know, we're going to stop any elective cases and just have these operating rooms be available for potential ICUs. We've even transferred our pediatric ICU patients from our hospital to the local children's hospital so that the pediatric ICU now can become an adult ICU for more bed space, so that just the hospital is just sort of energy-focused resources all on COVID-19. And for neurosurgeons like us, you know, we're just trying to adapt and adjust now. We're not doing brain tumors and spine surgery anymore. We're trying to take care of these patients uh, who have COVID-19 because their respiratory issues are amazing, and it's really impressive. Uh, and you just have to really work quickly, get the right scans, get the right consults in order, and try to save them as best you can. Because when it does hit, and it hits severely, uh, these people decompensate very quickly.
0: Yeah, and and you know this has become kind of a well, especially initially there was a, there were a population of people downplaying it as the flu, um, not understanding. You know this is a novel virus, so even if it were like the flu, from what I understand, that would still be a really bad deal. And I'll let you kind of uh, weigh in on the differences in, in the flu and, and and COVID. But you're a, you're you're going to be a, nerd, a neurosurgeon. I mean, this isn't an you're you don't deal in the world of upper respiratory stuff on the regular. But you and a lot of other doctors from different you know um, vocations uh, under the the medical umbrella have rushed to the scene to help out. Now that means that there's probably a learning curve, right, a little bit of one. And then also that, as you mentioned, a lot of elective surgeries are being canceled. So one, how big was that learning curve? And then two, you know, mentioning, you know, you did maybe your last neurosurgery uh, recently. Are there any elective surgeries that, that not getting them can be life-threatening? Who's, who's getting hit the hardest?
1: Yeah, no, that's a great question. So the learning curve, first question, is, is very steep and thankfully we've have some med- medical attendings and medical doctors who are great teachers. And to be at Harvard at this hospital, it is a teaching hospital. So sort of education is required or at least assumed to be a part of your role of treating patients. You treat patients, you also teach. And so they've had to teach, you know, OB-GYNs, neurosurgeons like us, dermatologists, anyone who typically doesn't deal with these upper respiratory viral illnesses, uh, what to do. And uh, they've given us modules to look at, and they've given us some sort of a, a steep, you know, sort of um, um, uh, reading and literature, some up-to-date literature, some journal articles to just kind of dive into and kind of get ready. Uh, they make sure that we're not doing anything that's out of our, um, our scope of practice. You know, we're not gonna go and intubate a person. I mean, we know how to take off of the skull and take out a brain tumor, but you know, we're not intubating everyone in the operating room. We have anesthesiologists for that. But if you need to put in orders, if you need to get a chest x-ray, if you need to draw labs, These are things that we can do. I know how to do these things. We are medical doctors first, before we subspecialize into neurosurgeons. So absolutely great question, but the learning curve is steep. We have great people to kind of help. As for those cases that have been postponed or canceled, you know, it's hard when you think about a neurosurgery case being elective, right? Somebody's got a benign brain tumor. And I mean, I'm sure you probably want that out and you don't want to keep waiting with this thing in your head like, oh man, you know, when is this going to grow? Is this going to cause a seizure? Is this going to turn from being an elective case to an urgent emerging case? And we know, Chris, that evidence has shown us that if we uh, take urgent and emergent cases and the outcomes, the patient outcomes after those cases, they don't do as well as the elective cases. What's the reason for that? Well, elective cases are controlled. They're slow. They're optimized. You have all the right labs, the right personnel. You got the right equipment. Everything is just in order. It just, it moves with a better rhythm and pace urgent or emergent, it's like um, fast and furious. It's just like, go, 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 go get it done. You can miss a step. You can lose blood that you're not supposed to lose. You can have the wrong equipment in there. You might not have the staff that's capable of kind of managing that situation. So these patients, unfortunately, don't do as well. So it's a great question. I think right now we're trying to, as best we can, parse out the patients who need those elective surgeries. Like for instance, the case I did this morning was a guy with you know, a, a brain tumor that was pretty serious and and stage well uh, advanced, um, and he needed this. Um, yeah. But for those ones who are maybe you know lower stages or smaller or asymptomatic um, and younger, you know, we take in all of these factors. We might tell them, hey, right now the hospital is a nidus for infection. It's not a great place to be, and we're slowing our resources down so that we can redirect them to the COVID nineteen. People have to be scared when they hear that. Yeah, they're very scared. And it's been hard, especially the, uh, the older population, because one, they, you know, I've been dealing with their issue. Say a person's got a spine herniation, a, a disc herniation, and they can't walk, uh, and their walking is getting worse. It's a real pain that they're feeling, and they're expecting to get it treated by us. Um, it becomes a problem and is a tough tough decision to make. But it's one, ultimately, after you explain the situation, give them the facts given the fact that you know if you were to come in here as a 76-year-old person with a chronic disc in your back, you may leave, unfortunately, infected with COVID-19. That's how bad it is right now. Right, it's riskier for you to come in and get the surgery. No question, no question. And so in saying that, I think the patients are sort of getting an understanding, but certainly it's not an easy thing to go through and it's a hard conversation for sure.
0: At what point did you know watching the news or following this thing, tracking it since early this year. Um, I can remember a moment when I was in Africa for Water Boys, my initiative, and I was worried, A, when I saw that it was spreading in Italy that we were gonna have a real problem here, and B, that like I might not even be able to get back home. I made it back in late February, but a few weeks later it could have been a lot more complicated. Um, was there a time, as, um, as a doctor, where you're saying, I might be called to the front lines in this fight? um and and it was there a moment where you realized it was going to get this bad did you ever see it getting this bad
1: i did not see it getting this bad i mean i knew about 2 or 3 weeks ago when our hospital started to make some adjustments they didn't let us fly to any conferences anymore and uh they were kind of reducing the number of patients families that were able to come and visit them when they started making these adjustments hospital wide i said ooh this might be serious and they may be hearing some of the stats that are coming um from epidemiologists and other you know Um, trackers who say, okay, well, this is how many number of infected patients Boston is going to see in the next week or two weeks or three weeks. When they started to make these changes, I said, well, we're a big hospital with a lot of resources. And if we're making this adjustment, then I can only imagine what the suburban local community hospitals are doing. And so we need to take this seriously. And it wasn't until about a week or two ago that our department started to make the more micro and minute adjustments to our daily schedule let us know that yeah, this is real. All hands on deck. Doesn't matter if you're being redeployed to the ICU, to the emergency department, to the surge clinic. You're going to have a role here because we all need to be in this fight together. And define surge clinic because that's what your floor has become. Yeah, so the surge clinic is basically a hospital within a hospital that sees patients that come from the street with COVID-19 or maybe symptoms analogous to COVID-19, and is run by uh, medical doctors and infectious disease doctors. And we welcome them with open arms come in and act as scribes, write notes, take histories, put oxygen on, on people if they need it, uh, get the proper labs, draw those labs, triage them and manage them through the hospital. If they need to come into the hospital, get them to the right floor. If they don't, then you make sure that they go self-quarantine and you uh, arrange the proper and necessary follow-up for them after. So it's, a, um, it's sort of a, just a, a, you know, a drive-through clinic that our hospital is doing um, in the midst of handling all these very acute cases. When you show up to that surge clinic, where's
0: your, where's your head at? Are you, are you, are you afraid? Are you gotta be afraid?
1: I'm, i I say I'm nervous uh, a little bit, but I think I'm more nervous for the patients because I know where, where this can lead. I've walked into the emergency department from having a consult that's, you know, they call me, and say, Hey, Myron, there's a neurosurgical patient down here. They've got a brain bleed. They were on a blood thinner and um, they're 90 years old. And I walk past that room and the next room I see somebody get emergently or urgently intubated because they have COVID-19 and then their family being called because they're having end-of-life or goals of care discussions. That is the, the extreme. That's the end line of this thing. This is where these patients can go. They can go from talking to you and me on a day-to-day basis, enjoying their life, drinking water, doing everything that they've been doing. In the next second, having to have a tube down their throat and their family being called and saying, "Well." If this patient was outside of their body and seeing how they looked right now with a tube down their mouth, uh, would they want to be in this state? And so these are very challenging conversations to have. And I'm nervous for those patients who come off the street with this because I know it can get there. And so, but my, my role, just like any of my colleagues' role, is just you know to kind of help um, manage them and get them the right consults and get them to the right labs and get them to the right floor so they're managed appropriately.
0: It sounds like this, obviously, there's a number of differences. Um between this and other illnesses that we, we, we've had to deal with that we're more familiar with. But one being that there's no roadmap and you do hear stories. I mean, talking about the British prime minister who you would assume has the best in healthcare. He's probably relatively healthy. Um, he's not elderly. Uh, he's older, but I can remember seeing him Skype into you know a press conference looking healthy one day after his diagnosis. And then, you know, he's, he's, he's hanging out at home and within 24 hours, he's in ICU. And I, these turns happen quickly. Have you heard stories of extreme turns, like you're talking about that, that stick in your head?
1: So, yeah, I mean, just, you know, that, that story was a real story um, that I had mentioned about the emergent and urgent intubation. And those are never ones that you wanna go through either. I've seen patients be turned prone, uh, because sometimes it's it's easier to, to expand your lungs and to breathe better when you're turned on your belly rather than supplying it on your back. These are things that are happening quite often. Typically, they would happen maybe once or twice a day, but now it's happening eight to nine, 10 times in these ICUs where these, um, you know, respiratory illness has just really taken a hold of, of these individuals. And I think these stories of the prime minister from the UK, of Chris Como from CNN, of, you know, other... Celebrities or people who have a platform to speak to people who may not see a hospital or understand what's happening in a hospital. I think these stories are making it more real for people, or at least I hope it is. Because for a long time, I think people were doubting that this was A, happening, and B, that it should matter to either one of us. Um, These were just numbers, right? 5,000 people die in the UK, 10,000 in America. Uh, They just seem like stats and figures. But when you think about it, these are real people with real lives real stories, with real families who are being affected by this as well. And you don't want that to be you or anyone you love. So do your part. And we've all talked about the part that the normal citizenry and the demos can do, social distancing, physical distancing, stay at home, healthy lifestyle, lifestyle behavior modifications, wear a mask if you're going outside, these sorts of things, because everyone's got a role. We do it in healthcare, but everyone in their normal life can, can do it as well. Well you make a good point. It's it
0: it was relatively faceless and you could write off a lot of the statistics as and and that may be true and I'll let you I'll let you weigh in on that, but you know, we we could all look at the statistics and say, well, most people have pre-existing conditions or are elderly, but you can't deny that there are a number of anecdotal stories right now coming from younger patients who seemingly are very healthy, who either die or get very, very sick. And to your point, like having folks who are celebrities or people who are visual like they're they're available whether it's like you know chris Cuomo's going on the news he's describing his symptoms he's there every day from his basement um you know a, a politician i mean that's somebody that you would assume has the best of the best in healthcare. and um you know that i think it helps see people to see that a you can get very sick um and b you can get better too so i mean like take it seriously but um i had a, a producer i did a show in the fall for uh, nfl network and He's forty-two years old. He ended up in ICU. He wasn't—he wasn't, um, he wasn't uh, hooked up to a breathing machine, but he—he he did have oxygen, and he was out. And he's still sick two weeks later, just—just just knocked down, can't get. It. So I think that those sort of anecdotal stories ha- uh, help a lot when you, when you talk about this disease and the end of the road scenario that you mentioned earlier, which is a, a fast turn or um, you know for the worst. How do people die from this? I mean, like. What kills these people? You know, in their final moments, what is happening to your body? Because I don't see that graphically
1: described very often either. You lose the ability to to do the things that um, make us live on a day to day basis. Give us the exams that we have. Give us the ability to function, move our arms, breathe, see, um, do all the senses that um, that we typically have uh, available to us. And so, without oxygenation, without the ability to sort of um, have the normal functioning of these organs, uh, you be, you succumb to this, and it's it's a real it's a real problem. And no matter how much oxygen you have, no matter how much respiratory support you can get, sometimes it's too grave. Especially if you have these pre-existing conditions where your immune system is sort of fighting and battling your AFib or your chronic diabetes or your hypertension or your AIDS or your endogenous steroid use or something like that. You know, just. Uh, or exogenous steroid use, it's just your immune system is sort of fighting this other battle when you have this other disease that's coming around the back and saying, okay, we're going to take you out this way. So it's, um, it's very difficult.
0: And could they be, they could be truly underlying conditions, like not just things that you knew you had been diagnosed with, but something you didn't know you had. And this, this virus brings it out. Oh, yeah. Or it worsens it. I mean, to the point where they can't exist together, and you can't get over it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and the age is a real thing too, because just, you know, you and I as, as younger people, we have a lot of functional reserve in our body to be able to fight anything really. I mean, we, we're, we're stronger, we're athletes, we're young just in general. And so our body just naturally has more cells, more blood volume, um, able to sort of get to the different parts of our body the way it needs to. Our vessels aren't um, corroded with atherosclerotic plaque and things like that, where it gets hard to get to the, it, the highway isn't clogged to get to the organs that we need to. But for these older people who've had 80 years or 90 years of having their arteries plaques um, and having them narrowed or don't have as many cells to get through or their blood's a lot thinner or the heart doesn't pump as fast or pump as strong as maybe ours is so doesn't have that that surge, that push to get out. I mean all of these things are just natural in the aging process. And so that's what makes it difficult too to get oxygen to the different parts of the body. Especially, we're not getting it in with this virus, and that's why pneumonia knocks out people who are eighty-five, nine years old, and it doesn't knock out us. It looks like a little stumble; we keep moving, right? Um, the natural process.
0: So, I want to talk about the doctors because I think um, people have said a lot about the doctors. People are applauding their efforts. Um, you know, they're they're thankful for people like you, but I also I also don't know that they really get. The factors that go into decision making for some of these people on the front lines. Um, you know, I talked to a friend who says he has to consider not going home to his family. We have a nurse
1: uh, in particular I can think of uh, who's got an immunocompromised uh, daughter at home. And so she's now working um, on a non COVID 19 floor. Uh, and there's been some threats that that floor is going to turn into a COVID 19 patient floor. And she's, you know, making the hard decision to say, well, if this happens, I I may have to step out of work for a while because I don't want to have my daughter be susceptible to this infection uh, if I get it and bring it to her. And so that's a real tough choice. She loves working. She's one of our best nurses. It'd be a value loss on our end not to have her around, uh, regardless if she's taking care of neurosurgical patients or COVID-19 patients. She's just spectacular, very bright uh, and picks up a lot of things quickly and she's gotta make this tough choice. So we may lose a member like that. Um, our hospital is uh, guaranteeing some uh, hotels locally because the, sure. the hours that our, our um, employees are working are really, really long. And if you live 45 minutes away, an hour away, in New Hampshire, perhaps, or something like that, uh, they're guaranteeing some, hot, some hotel rooms nearby so you don't have to go home and bring this infection to your family. So people are thinking about it for sure.
0: When you come in, what do they, I mean, they have to like check you at the door and you know, probably you're changing clothes and in and out. What's going on when you, when you walk in and when you leave?
1: Yeah. So, uh, there's an app that we use in our healthcare system. It's, this is partners app that really goes through all the different symptoms that you may have. If you have no symptoms, you're cleared for work. If you do have a symptom then you get triage and into in a different area and they kind of figure it out from there. Um, but you have to put on a hand sanitizer and a mask, like I mentioned. So you're being checked and screened as, mm-hmm. as you walk in. And then, just a personal thing for, for myself and others, you know, we take off our scrubs before we get home, just so we're not bringing it to our, right. um, to our families and loved ones. I sent my wife down to, to Georgia. So she's away from me right now. So I'm not just exposing her. So all these different decisions, these personal decisions are, are being made.
0: The antiviral um, medicine conversation, um, you know, there's been. Whether you like the way the information was disseminated or not, um, there's been talk about, you know, in, in particular, a drug that starts with H that I will butcher hydrochloroquine. Yeah,
1: hydroxychloroquine. Yeah. Uh,
0: hydroxychloroquine. Okay. So stuff like this. Okay. What's the biggest misconception? And that may well be the answer, but I, I know there's some people that think that in a crisis like this, the red tape is gone and that, you know, we're going to have a drug in a month. Like, and we're not even talking about vaccines right now. We're talking about like, like, Drugs. Um, what what's the biggest misconception with this process for people as far as the 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 solutions we're going to have down the line, including a vaccine,
1: but even before that, is it because you want people to be healthy because you care about their health and their general well-being, or is it because you want them to join the workforce again, get the economy running, and get the whole country back up again? You know, it's sort of where's the motivation coming from? But me, as a medical professional, and as several others have said. You cannot unleash a drug onto the market, into the world for consumption uh, widely without being tested, without it being safe. Uh, You do not want some sort of medication to harm a patient uh, worse than what it's trying to treat or what it's trying to prevent. And without finite, definitive, evidence-based, peer-reviewed, studied trials uh, that are sort of the gold standard, these randomized control trials. with good power and, and really you know, good solid evidence, it's just, it's hard for me to, to get behind something that honestly may just be experimental at the time. Uh, yes, we're in a difficult situation. Yes, it's dire, but I, I honestly believe that with a flattening of the curve, everyone sort of buying in collectively to you know, do their part, social distance and all that. I think you give the time for vaccinations and maybe for hydroxychloroquine Uh, coupled with azithromycin, they were saying, you know, sort of uh, be tested and see if it it can work. I I just think it's really, really ambitious. And it honestly could be deleterious uh, to take it right now, just on a whim and just on, on a prayer and on a hope.
0: Yeah, it just seems like the best medicine right now is to stay your ass home. I mean, like for me, I like, I got no problem doing it. I can speak for myself. I know that I have what I need. I'm very blessed. Like my family's, you know, healthy and and I have a job that I can work from home. I understand not everybody can do that. So I'm not minimizing that dilemma. But I think that if you can, staying home is, you know, we're, we're, we're looking for the next wonder drug. It's going to take time. Uh, not only that, the vaccine's going to take a long time. Where are we right now? You mentioned flattening the curve. Um, you hear different things about that. You hear, you'll hear, oh, brace yourself. This is going to be the worst week. Uh, the timeline as you see it. And that's the thing. There's no the virus sets the timeline, that's what I keep hearing on the news, and I would tend to agree there. Uh, but where are we in this battle as, as you look at it?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I see the last numbers that you know, um, I was able to take a look at, uh, You know, we're still sort of going up a little bit actually in this country, and the UK as well. Other places, France, South, South Korea, you know, they're starting to flatten a little bit as their numbers are going down. Um, Boston in particular, I can just speak for our, our city um, because we're getting constant updates from our mayor uh, and our hospital administration. Uh, we're going to see a surge next week and a week after potentially. Mid-April is supposed to be the real, real big time. Um, but I, I still think we have a ways to go. As far as the end game, the timeline, as you mentioned, the virus sort of determines that. And I've heard people whispering about, you know, having NFL games and sporting events, you know, around these times in a week or a month or, you know, whatever the case may be. I just, I just hesitate towards saying that that's the right move because, you know, you have so many people uh, that are infected. Um, There's people who are infected who don't know they're infected. Uh, You're in a very communal setting uh, when you're in a stadium, when you're in a locker room. uh, You may just be reintroducing this bad bug, this bad virus to a group of people uh, who are just waiting to be infected based on the proximity they have to be to enjoy something that we all love. We want it back. We all do. There's no question. Anyone's questioning whether we want to start the seasons up again or get back to the NCAA or those things, but you have to be very smart about it and be patient.
0: We just have to prioritize for one year, dude. This is like our generation's test. Maybe just chill out for a year and just don't expect football. And if football comes, you know, as sports fans, which is very secondary, tertiary even, or I could go down the line. I don't have the vocabulary for it. But, I mean, it's a thousand, you know, rungs down the ladder uh, to what we should be worrying about. But I, I'm with you. I, I would be surprised if, if the NFL starts on time. I also, you know, just uh, as somebody who doesn't know jack shit about any of this stuff, I'm looking at it and I'm it, saying, why wouldn't there be a second surge? Like, why w- when we get this thing under control, we're going to rush back out and expect to
1: pack stadiums with 70,000 people. It doesn't seem realistic to me. That's correct. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think that the best mode of sort of determining, and again, this could be from my own myopia being in a hospital, but the best mode of determining how well we're doing is when you see hospitals start opening up their floors uh, again, right? Our neurosurgical floor turns back into a neurosurgical floor. Yeah. Our operating room start to pick up again. Our um, amount of ventilators we're using, amount of oxygen support that we're using, those things go down. The deaths go down. The infected people go down. When you use hospitals, in healthcare systems as a barometer, you say, okay, well, our most sick is sort of going down, the trend is going down. And you want to see it consistently go down, not a blip here and then go up and a blip. No, you want to see it consistently go down, make it a trend. So you know, at, at one point, it's going to reach its, its bottom. And, um, and at that point, then you can consider getting back to this normal life. And that's, I think that's the way we got to go.
0: Is this the best time that this could have happened in, the, in 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 the year? I mean, like, for this to happen in the summer, there is the possibility that that the weather, you know, alters the trajectory of this this curve or whatever. Um, You know, if it were the dead of winter, you're also dealing with like the start of flu season. Could it have been a lot worse in the fall? Um, And does the summer factor into it at all for you
1: and what you're hearing in, in your line of work? So you hear some things that, well, it's not hitting the tropical countries as much. The Bahamas has, I think, 33 infected patients and six deaths. Haiti's got one or, or, or something very low. The testing
0: of- capabilities and people could be dying in Haiti and we don't have, you know, like the medical infrastructure there just isn't very good.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. You might not know, right? I mean, these are, <laughs> these are aspects. The tests aren't widely available in some of these low to middle income countries. so They're uh, not
0: widely available here and we got more money than, than God in the United States and we can't get our shit together and get people tested. When are we going to know? When are we going to have a testing uh, protocol that that's uh, that's sufficient in your eyes as you look at it.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm hoping soon. You know, I, I think that um, you know hospitals uh, are, are certainly being overtaxed and overwhelmed. And I I know that some Department of Health in different parts of the country, especially here in Massachusetts, I can speak for, uh, they've developed these like sort of driving clinics that sort of offloading the pressure from their hospitals. But it needs to be more readily accessible. I think we obviously were behind. We're still playing a little bit of catch up at this point getting the tests available, getting the, the, the um, expediency of the test uh, so you get results quicker uh, and you're not waiting around for two or three days in a hospital, taking up a bed space if you don't need to. Um, and then also making sure that we're, we're not just solely relying on one test. If we need to do two tests to make sure we have an absolute true positive or a true negative and not a false positive or a false negative, make sure that we, we get that squared away too.
0: And as the testing gets better, do you anticipate the mortality rate goes, uh, goes a little bit more in our favor, because there's going to be more folks that we, we didn't know had it. And then like, I forgot to ask you, you know, for the for the flu truthers who think this is the flu, if they don't get it yet. Um, how different is it from the flu? I mean, people cite mortality, people die of the flu every year. Uh, yeah, well, everybody has the flu. It's on such a larger scale. Um, can you help uh, maybe alleviate that intellectual burden that some people are suffering
1: from? Yeah, first the first question. I think test, uh, you know, more tests, the more people being tested. Whenever you increase the power of a study, whenever you have more um, people in your study, uh, you can get more accurate numbers for sure. And so uh, you may see our mortality numbers go up. You may see the morbidity numbers go up, um, just because we know more, more information. And that's I think that's very helpful, uh, sort of for epidemiologists sort of trend and track everything that's going on. As for the flu conversation, that's I heard that in the beginning that it's no worse than a flu and Uh, It's like a common cold, shouldn't worry about it, but frankly, I'm not being called to the emergency departments. I haven't seen in three years uh, of working there consistently as a neurosurgical resident where they're like, well, this patient has the flu, uh, but they also have a brain bleed. It's very serious and it does knock people out. It knocks those specific people out, as we were mentioning before, if you're already sick and you come in just appreciated on your immune system, yeah, it's certainly going to affect people in 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 a very bad way. But there's this, no but there's no point. There's no point to to
0: equating the flu and COVID because one's a novel virus. Like it's you you're talking about to, like what's the point of arguing that the flu and even if the, the rates change or lower a little bit, one is novel and one's not. We've built up immunity to the flu, the flu for quite some time. I mean, I've been getting the flu since I was a kid. So Um, I it's 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 crazy. I mean, there's a lot of misinformation out there I do want to ask you in a second where you're getting your news from so people can go to the right place to get their news Uh, But first I do want to ask you. What do you think? um, The new normal is pre pandemic or pre pre vaccine and post vaccine How do you think this changes the way we we do things in society? Do you have any? uh, inclinations of how that might change
1: yeah. Uh, you know, I think that the way we think about preventing something like this from happening again is uh, making sure that if we hear, a, hear any sort of um, growing concern from another country or from maybe even a part of our own country, uh, that we develop quickly a systematic approach from hospital to the non-hospital sector of life uh, that manages this Expeditiously we've seen the countries that acted quickly and promptly sort of have a better response total in, in totality, right? So you see South Africa yeah. for instance uh, again different economy, you know different culture all these things are different However, it is still a, a very developed nation uh, That's got some wonderful technology and advancements that we have here in America, but they responded quickly They had the right response uh, and they activated a lot of their personnel in many aspects of their of their life So if we see this happen or, or have a glimpse that this will happen again. I think it needs to be a very quick response, a swift response, so that we're not playing catch-up like we're playing right now. That's difficult to manage on any level, regardless of what kind of leader you are, what party you belong to. If you're behind, yeah. you're not gonna make it. It's, uh, yeah, find people, you know, and
0: I have my politics, whatever, we're not going down that road, but I, you find people that when you're critical of the government's response at this point, it's, it's you're, you're politicizing a pandemic. No, we have to learn something from this or so the next one. If the Ebola virus had the transmittability uh, of COVID, we would be all gone. Like,
1: exactly. and that's
0: the scary thing. This is like a, a love tap relative, and I'm not trying to minimize it, but what, what it could be, it could be way worse. Not to mention people are dying. That's the primary, that's the primary issue here. So if you're if you're an economics major and you're worried about that, why don't we spend ahead of the next one and be ready? Absolutely. No, you're
1: absolutely
0: right. Yeah. More. <laughs> well, if you agree with me that I'm feeling good about myself right now. OK. Um, what where can people get news on this thing? Because there's a ton of before I let you go, I think that this has been incredibly informative. People, as this thing develops, are going to be going to their news sources and um if they don't like what they what they hear there they might write it off what where's the right place where do doctors read the news about this thing
1: so we actually read uh articles journal articles that's where we go and some of that language may be maybe a little bit difficult to digest (laughs) (laughs) but we go to journal of american medical association we go to new england journal of medicine we go to these like scientific and scholastic articles because these are these are um, peer-reviewed and data-driven and non-biased, right? They're just like purely facts that you're getting. So if you can Google uh, journal articles, COVID-19, you know, you'll get some, some really factual articles that will be very helpful without a slant politically one way or the other. Yeah. And, I mean, frankly, I think our hospital and other major hospitals, uh, Stanford, Hopkins, Mayo Clinic, Cleveland Clinic, you know, they have some wonderful resources on their websites you actually go right to the source and you figure out, okay, you know, I like this article. I'm, I'm seeing what I'm seeing here. There's videos, there's tutorials. Our hospital's got a lot of that at Mass General. So uh, I think your hospitals, I think maybe your departments of health locally, uh, these journal articles, this is the best way that we go at it. Try to stay away from you know, maybe some of the other networks that uh, may have a uh, politicized agenda.
0: Well, I got a great idea a Rosetta Stone for uh, doctor speak that we could you know Maybe we could once this thing uh, we could you and I could get rich off this thing We just take peer-reviewed journals and, and translate them in layman's terms.
1: Yeah, exactly exactly
0: yeah. <laughs> So hit me up when this thing's over uh, <laughs> Martin, can't thank you enough for your time. I know you're, you're getting ready to do a 24-hour shift uh, I speak for everybody listening when I say we we oh man I appreciate you and to think that you were once just a lowly NFL football player and now you're you're a hero, uh, saving lives and volunteering to walk onto that floor every night. I just I thank you from the bottom of my heart, and I'm I'm
1: appreciative to be joined. No, oh, thanks, man. It was uh, great catching up with you. Tell your brother and your dad. I said hello, man. Uh, you're hello. you're awesome. Everything that I have seen you do, uh, you know, on, on Twitter, you're just uh, super super well respected, and obviously got a great sense of humor too. I know you and you George. Got so to like- you. Got to. Yeah, man, it's, it's amazing to watch. So thank you for having me.
0: Thanks, bro. We got to get you on another time and, and stay safe and uh, my best to the family and kick some ass, dude. Thanks, bro. So Myron Roll, great, great guest, uh, very insightful. And I just can't thank uh, Myron and people like Myron enough. Um, pretty remarkable as I sit here at home and uh, stress myself out because I'm doing a little social distancing or I got to watch the news at night and it's bad news. I mean, he's living that bad news and he's seeing it firsthand and he volunteered to do it. And I know there's a lot of people like Myron who don't get the credit because they weren't football players. Um, but, you know, Myron's one of many um, and I'm just very appreciative that we have guys and girls like that. So thanks to Myron. Let's get to mailbag before our roll. Um, texting with big letters asks, what's my favorite non-Outcast Dungeon Family album? That would be Soul Food, Goody Mob. Um, quarantine workout, Somebody asked me about that uh, I'm not doing a whole, whole lot I'm just I'm eating a whole, whole lot So I have to do things To burn or expend the energy that I'm taking in As I stare at my fridge And walk away And stare at my fridge and walk away Every night after 8pm So I gotta do something I gotta move I can't get soft and blubbery During the pandemic, Um, listen, there could be a summer. I don't think there's going to be a summer, but in the event that there is, I can't just roll up to the community pool without coming correct. I'm going to need at least four abs, so I'm doing things like crunches, um, toe touches, stuff like that, and I'm doing at least 25 to 50 of them a day, and then I'm doing... A uh, hundred push ups, yeah, a day, thirty minutes on the bike or so again, I just want to be ready just in case I'm in the bullpen summer if you need me i won't be I won't be sporting the soft bod, all right, the dad bod maybe not the soft bod, I don't want to embarrass my family, um so yeah, I'm sweating a little bit, but I sweat more for like to be honest i'm I, I sweat a little bit more just to Just to feel good, you know, um, I'm in a better mood if I'm working out. I know I'm not the only one. That's kind of the way I am. So um, AG Fit for Life asks hardest working teammates versus teammates who didn't have to work out at all. Well, there are some guys who are more naturally gifted and I'm not going to I'm not going to mention them because they might take it as a slight insinuating that they didn't earn what they have. They're definitely guys who don't have to do shit and just roll out there and play ball. Uh, Lane Johnson is a guy who has every contraption known to man. He spends like an extra two hours in the weight room every day doing weird shit, weird exercises, watching like John Bay style videos, watching like YouTube videos, like very fringy tinfoil hat fitness. Routines, But he's working his fucking ass off. And that dude is strong. So whatever he's doing, it's working. BG, he's the guy who 7 a.m. when you get there in camp, he's just going to be hanging out in his football pads. Practice could be at 3 p.m. BG wakes up, puts on his football pads. I don't even think I think BG might put on his football pads when he gets out of bed in the morning at the fucking Marriott where we stay during camp. I think BG drives to work in his football uniform like he's a Pee Wee football player. (laughs) He will lift weights in his football pants. He is ready to practice every day, every day. And he loves lifting heavy weights. He's one of the strongest individuals I've played with, and he loves to throw around the weights. Uh, So those are the guys who work really hard in the weight room, on the uh, Eagles at least, on my last stop. Stance Armstrong asks, would you rather get shot in the kneecap or go through an entire training camp in a hazmat suit? Let me Google the recovery process for getting shot in the fucking kneecap because you will not catch me in a hazmat suit in Earth City, Missouri, where the actual heat is 103 and the heat index is like 120 and you're in a bowl, like where all the moisture is settling and there's a dump like literally a dump a half mile away that they had to shut down um, because there was like radioactive waste burning underneath the dump. I don't know, like I don't know the the X's and O's of doing bad shit for the environment, but whatever they were doing wasn't good and it wasn't good for the people practicing right there. Might have been safer in a a hazmat suit um, ironically, but I say all that to say this, with all that bullshit going on in the heat, all that stuff. If I had to do that in a hazmat suit, I'm, I'm gonna die. So sh- getting shot in the kneecap, I can recover from. Um, yeah, getting shot in the kneecap for me. Uh, and then Candy Ken asked me what my favorite Clips album is. It's not a real discussion for me, uh, it's Lord Willen. Um, and that's a masterful album, production-wise. Uh, and it's got some just favorites for me. Uh, You've got Virginia, uh, you've got Grindin', Cot Damn, uh, you've got Gangster Lean, which is probably my favorite one, Uh, and then I'm Not You, which is one of the most underrated uh, clip songs, period. Um, Yeah, period, great song. Uh, Anyways, thanks again to Myron Roll, Um, and I will catch you next time. Hope everybody's staying safe. I've got some good interviews coming up later in the week. Um, one surprise interview that I'm not going to tease much. You just got to tune in. It's going to be a big deal, a big fucking deal. This interview, I don't want to get your hopes up, but get them up. Um, and then I've got Joe Barksdale as well. And when I set it up like that, I did not mean for it to sound like I have this great interview and I just have Joe Barksdale as well. Joe Barksdale is going to be a great interview, but I have one person uh, coming on later this week that I'm really excited about. So keep tuning in uh, and appreciate y'all listening. Take it easy.